0: Amen. We are in Romans chapter 3. We are finishing out, believe it or not, making good progress in our study of this, Paul's most uh, certainly well known and probably uh, his uh, fullest exposition of the gospel that we have uh, in the book of Romans. Uh, We are finishing out what is the first major section, or if you want to view it this way, you have the introduction in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And then you have this section that we're concluding tonight, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, and going all the way through chapter uh, 3, verse 20. So that's the section we're finishing tonight. Uh, the The Apostle Paul has already so persuasively and very carefully laid out his case, his argument that the whole world is guilty before God, who will judge each one according to his works, and who will not show any partiality." Now we need to remind ourselves that this is the way that Paul sees the world divided into two major groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, That's very important to understand as we read through the book of Romans, Uh, and in fact the whole Bible makes this case. Uh, That as Paul looks at the world, he looks at it through that covenantal lens as to how God has interacted with mankind since the fall and because of sin and how he has revealed himself by covenant uh, with the Jews set apart from all the other peoples and then everyone else in the world, all the other nations uh, with whom he did not enter into that covenant. And this idea of covenant is so central to the Bible. Um, In uh, our confession, it says this in the very first uh, section on covenant. It says, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. In other words, we would never, because of our sin, ever know God unless he took the first step and by way of covenant uh, came to us, condescended uh, and came to us. Of course, we're going to see in Romans, and this is also a very important point, that, that Paul's division, Jews and Gentiles, is really to serve the purpose of his argument all throughout the book of Romans, but he himself will transition and shift into what really are the two final categories of all humankind, those who are in Christ, united to Christ, and those who are outside of Christ. So it's no longer because of God's purpose and plan in the new covenant to include Gentiles into his people, his kingdom, it's no longer going to be Jews and Gentiles. It's simply going to be with reference to whether one is in Christ, united by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ, or whether one is because of their disobedience outside of Jesus Christ. And so Paul in verse 9 is going to pick up right where he left off, In our last study and he's going to essentially summarize everything he said from chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 8 and give you fair warning and you already know this I think it is one of the most striking and thorough pictures of man's guilt and depravity found anywhere in the Bible. We've already seen some of this in the beginning of our study of chapter 1, verse 18, as he talked about the Gentiles uh, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, But here, it's one phrase after another describing the depravity of all mankind. Not simply Jew, not simply Gentile, but all mankind. The verdict, says Paul, is now in. And the verdict is not good. It's not good at all. In fact, if I had a a camera, a spiritual camera, if you will, and I was able to put on a selfie stick and stand here like this and hold it up with me included and take pictures of all of you, if that picture were to be of who you are and who I am apart from Christ, our old nature, it would not be a good picture at all. In fact, it would be this picture that we have here. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's taking a selfie, if you will, of all humanity, all humankind, and the picture is not a good one. So please stand as we give our attention to this picture, what God says about you, what he says about me. Let us give our attention. This is the word of the living God, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 3 of Romans. who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. All flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers Fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, indeed, this is the verdict that has been handed down by the judge of all the earth, the one who rules sovereignly, the one who sees all as it really is. Help us to wrestle with this verdict, help us to understand it, press it upon us, we pray, that we might see our great need of someone outside of ourselves, that we might know your salvation, which you have revealed in Jesus Christ. Bless us, we pray. Give us ears to hear, hearts that receive your word with joy, and hearts of faith that look to Christ as our only hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. They have been among, I believe, some of the most attention-grabbing words that you will ever hear The jury is back. The verdict is in. Over the years of ministry, I have sat in many different courtrooms, and I've heard that language, and I've watched everyone present. If they're outside of the courtroom, they run to the courtroom. They take their seat, and they wait to hear from the jury as they return. There's a sense of great anticipation. Right now, I'm finishing a book now entitled uh, The Trial of the Century. Perhaps you've heard of it. In the book, the author argues that the Scopes Trial, or the Scopes Monkey Trial, as it was known, was the most important and significant trial of the 20th century. And I believe fairly that he makes a good case. That trial took place in Dayton, Tennessee, over a period of just eight days in 1925. The trial concerned a high school teacher named John Scopes, He was accused of teaching Darwinian evolution in his class. His lawyer was the very famous Clarence Darrow, and the prosecutor was the equally famous William Jennings Bryan. The jury verdict came in, in again just a period of eight days. And Mr. Scopes was found guilty of teaching evolution. It was a pretty clear-cut case as to whether he was teaching it or not, in violation of Tennessee law and fined in that day $100. Shortly afterward, the judgment was overturned on a technicality. The case was made even more famous through the fictional movie, Account Inherit the Wind. The case certainly had repercussions throughout the country. It was the first case ever to be argued in court with respect to whether or not evolution was an acceptable view of how the world came to be. You might expect in Tennessee in those days, it was uh, hotly debated and rejected, but it brought the whole issue to the forefront of people's minds. Now, an argument can be made that when you look at the whole century of the 20th century, that for modern man, that trial may not actually be the most famous one. It captivated, yes, a small town, but did it really captivate a nation, the world? Well, it didn't. But there was a trial, and perhaps you know where I'm going with this. There was a trial in the last century that did captivate the entire nation and world. It was the trial, of course, of O.J. Simpson, one of the greatest athletes of the modern era who faced murder charges of both his former wife and her friend. The jury, of course, was sworn in on November 3, 1994. In January of 1995, the jury was told that they would be sequestered for the duration of the double murder trial. And then on January 24, 1995, the trial officially began with the opening statements of the prosecution. Almost 16 months after the bodies of his ex-wife and her friend were found, the jury verdict came in on October 3, 1995. Not guilty. The trial captured the attention of the entire world, through daily news reports and cameras allowed into the courtroom. But I remember, and if you're of a certain age, perhaps you remember, I remember exactly where I was sitting. I remember exactly who I was with. It was another guy who worked in youth ministry like I did, and we were just sitting, watching, and waiting to hear the guilty or not guilty verdict of the jury. So many of us remember those things very clearly. That probably, and some would argue, is the most famous or infamous case of the last century. Now, many of us, many of us as Christians, may remember the time when we first heard another verdict delivered by God the Holy Spirit, when we heard for the very first time the word guilty spoken over our lives, which we thought were just fine— And if we were pressed, we would have said that we thought everything between us with God and us was good. I was 19 years old and thought God and me were on good terms until I heard that verdict by the grace of God and came to see myself as God saw me. So no matter how interesting we may find some of the great trials of the last century or any century, or any trials to come, the one verdict we ought to be most interested in is the one that God the judge, the sovereign judge, pronounces over all mankind. And that is exactly what Paul writes about in this section of Romans, which he began in chapter 1, verse 18, and now concludes by way of summary in these verses tonight. And so there are really two ways, I think, at least it's been helpful for me this week, Two ways to look at this text tonight. The first is by looking at the full transcript, the full transcript of the trial, if you will, in verses 9 through 20. We have here the full transcript, everything that God wants us to know about who we are as God sees us from his perspective. We have it all here. The second is a little different way, and we'll get to that in just a few moments. So look with me at verse 9 as Paul begins. He begins, of course, by setting the stage as he often did with questions. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Now commentators note everyone I've studied and in my own study of this passage, the Greek is difficult to understand. It's difficult to understand whether Paul is asking this kind of question or that kind of question. Is he asking a question about the advantage or about the disadvantage of the Jews? He's already argued that there is something that gives them an advantage with respect to knowing God, etc., because God has, verse 1 or verse 2 of chapter 3, he has entrusted to them the oracles of God. That's a, a great blessing, a great advantage. Whatever Paul is asking here, his answer, regardless of how we understand what is asking, the answer is very clear. There is no advantage for the Jew. And he's argued that there is no advantage at all for the Gentile either. In this full transcript of the case that God has against us, Paul will turn to the oracles of God, what God has spoken, what God said in the past using the Old Testament, and he will speak authoritatively on behalf of God as to what God says about you and about me in our natural fallen condition. And that really is the viewpoint here because Paul's purpose is to show our great need to dismantle any idea that we might have that we are in good with God because of our works, because of our heritage, because of anything that we can imagine that we have sort of an in with God when it comes to judgment. Paul is going to disavow us of all of that through what he writes here, what he quotes from the scriptures of the Old Testament. So a few things to note before we look at the actual text of what Paul says in this full transcript. The text that Paul cites, the various texts, are from various portions of the Old Testament. And by Paul doing that, he is showing us really that the whole of God's revelation speaks this same way. This is not an isolated picture that God gives us of who we really are apart from Christ. This is the whole testimony of the whole Old Testament. This is God's final word on these issues. Secondly, the texts are not quoted. If you look at them carefully, they're not quoted in their entirety. Paul literally goes back and grabs various passages and takes portions of them and puts them all together in this way, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in order to paint a very clear, thorough picture. For instance, he quotes from the Psalms, Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, and Psalm 36. He quotes from Proverbs 1, actually. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 59, the passage you heard read earlier in the service. Finally, another interesting sort of overall uh, view of these things is that Paul seems committed to continuing to follow this division of Gentile and Jew as he quotes from these passages. One commentator especially notes this, and I think it's very helpful. The passages that he quotes from the Psalms if you look at the Psalms in their context, are all passages that speak of the character of the wicked in general. What would be the Gentile world or the the Greek, as Paul says here, it would be all of those nations other than the Jews. And so he's sticking with this division. He quotes from the Psalms. He identifies these passages as defining the general character of the wicked And then he quotes from Isaiah 59, a passage, of course, we studied not so long ago where Isaiah is actually speaking to Israel, to his own people, and he's describing Israel in their own unrighteousness. So it's Jew and Gentile or Gentile and Jew. He chooses passages very interestingly and very specifically related to each one to prove his point. The whole world, Jew and Gentile, are guilty before God. So says God. So says the word of God. And so Paul begins. Notice how he begins as you look at this uh, list of things he includes, beginning in verse 10. He starts in verse 10, really through verse 12, and then at the end, so he sort of sandwiches the the middle in between these general principles or statements that give insight into the character of the wicked. These are big picture sort of ways to describe our depravity. None is righteous. No, not one, he says. There is no one who understands and no one who seeks for God. I remember a very well known pastor, one that I greatly admired, who used to speak often at a Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. When he spoke about John 4, I've mentioned this before, he says, You know, brothers and sisters, there's only one seeker, when he talks about seeker sensitive services, there's only one seeker, he says. When we gather for worship in God, and it's not anyone in the pew, it is God seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so he was dismissing this idea that we should move to some sort of seeker-sensitive service to cater everything we do to the one who may be looking for or seeking after God. Notice what God says, there is no one who understands God Paul says that in 1 Corinthians, doesn't he? The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit, does not discern them. And he says it as well, there is no one who actually is seeking for God. They may be seeking for some version of God that they have in their minds, And listen, broad evangelicalism and so many of our churches today in the United States, these churches are committed to catering everything they do to those who come through the door rather than to the Lord who is the honored guest in every service of worship. No one is actually seeking after God, but many will cater to that nonetheless and present a God who is not as he is in the scriptures themselves. So you have these pictures, these broad strokes, if you will. There's no one who is righteous, no one who understands, no one who seeks after God. All have together turned aside. All have become worthless with respect to what they can offer to God. No one does good, not even one. Is there any doubt that Paul is sufficiently arguing here that no one at all is commending themselves or can commend themselves to God in the broadest of ways? But then he he ends this section, and I want to look at these two ends first before we look at the beginning, with another statement that is a broad brush stroke. There is no fear of God, before their eyes. Now, we understand what that means. We uh, look, I, I remember sitting in a friend's car and they had one of these uh, sort of heads up uh, displays that would display, you wouldn't have to look down, not even a little bit to the where that usually is. You would look up at the windshield and there would be the display. The idea is as we go through life keeping our heads up, if you will, there is no one who has the fear of God before their eyes. All are wicked, all are described this way. There's, there's no fear of God before their eyes, no remembrance of who he is, no desire to live in any way that would bring uh, him glory. Th- that's Paul's sort of summary description, and it sandwiches the, the in-between part here that we're going to look at very briefly in verses 13 through 17. This is where things get, as some have said, when the preacher gets personal now and starts speaking to each one of us individually and to himself as well. As one commentator says, this first part, the broad brushstrokes of the verses we've just looked at, is really like the root of the problem. This is who we are by nature. This is kind of our disposition, our orientation, and then that leads to the fruit of our lives, which is, as we can see here, wicked as well. Notice, beginning in verse 13, how he describes it. This is more specific. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. What do you notice about that whole section, this more specific picture. Well, this describes everything related to our speech, to how we speak, to how we relate to one another by speech. It begins with the throat, which is the sort of the view that we have into the very center of our being. You open your mouth, the doctor says, open wide and say, ah, he looks to the back of your throat and down your throat and what Paul says is when you do that, then the throat is like an open grave. What's inside is nothing but death, and death comes out of it, the throat, if you will. It's what Jesus noted about the scribes and Pharisees of his own day. They're like whitewashed tombs where inside, in the inner part of them, there's nothing but dead man's bones That's a similar picture of what Paul says here about the nature of uh, everyone who is apart from Christ. But this whole idea of the, the throat and then the tongue speaking to deceive and venom of asps under their lips, mouths that are full of cursing and full of bitterness is the acting out and how we treat our neighbors and how we treat God, how we speak about both, out of the mouth, Jesus says, speaks uh, the abundance of the heart. or it, It's the mouth that speaks the abundance of the heart. So what we speak, what we say, the scriptures tell us, is a reflection of what's inside our hearts. James 3, we know that great passage which focuses upon the tongue being a restless evil. James writes, the tongue is set among our members Staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. There's a similar description, is it not, on what Paul says here regarding the organ of the tongue of the speech as we relate both to God and to others. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? He goes on to talk about another organ, if you will, of our body, our feet, and our feet carry us everywhere. Our feet are a description of that which takes us to everything that we do in life. It's our feet that carry us about. And Paul moves from speech to now the organ of behavior or feet that carry us to all kinds of evil, running to and fro to commit all kinds of acts of evil. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. You know, feet don't shed blood, right? We're not talking about feet that actually cause the bleeding. We're, calling it, we're talking about feet that run to all kinds of evil. The evil of shedding blood, of leaving ruin and misery in their paths. And the way of peace they have not ever known. It's a horrid description of our lives It's an accurate description, according to Paul, of how God sees us as we are called to live, uh, or as we live in this world, this fallen world. I I do find, just as a way to sort of connect with where we're going to be in, I suspect, a, a few months, When we get to Romans chapter 6, it's very interesting to me that Paul returns to this language of the organs of our body, uh, the members, he calls it, of our body. You remember in chapter 6, he's talking about how we are to pursue sanctification, to, to pursue what God is doing in us to make us more holy and like Jesus Christ, that those who are justified will be sanctified as well. You remember this uh, this language, let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace, Paul, Paul loves this imagery of our bodies and the members of our bodies being offered back to God in salvation for his use as instruments of righteousness. Why? Because prior to that, they were instruments of wickedness, as Paul notes here. The picture, again, is not a flattering one, but it is comprehensive. It is thorough. It's describing the whole of us from God's perspective. That's really the full transcript. And the verdict comes in verses 19 and 20. Because of all of this, Paul says, because of all of this, every mouth now is stopped. Every time I see that language, I think of Job putting his hand over his mouth as God Uh, talks with him as God uh, debates, if you will, with Job. Job puts his hand over his mouth. There's no response to make. Every mouth is stopped that the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being could possibly ever be justified in his sight, since through the law comes only the knowledge of sin. That's his verdict. His verdict has to do with how will we stand before God on the day of judgment? How will we give an account to God when he requires us to give one? What will our response be? What he says here is in our natural fallen state, our hands are over our mouth and we are humbled before God and we have nothing to say. Because God's verdict is clear. Now that's the perspective of the sort of the full manuscript of the trial as we have it here through the Apostle Paul. What I want to give you very quickly, secondly, is what I believe and what I'm calling sort of an executive summary. Someone comes along, they look at the whole and they say, here's a great way to summarize what Paul is saying in these verses. Now, the end result is the same, but the summary is helpful because it gives us another aspect or way to look at what Paul is saying that I think biblically is very, very helpful. You see this first in verse 9 and then in verse 19. Two statements very similar, two statements that Paul makes that describe our condition apart from Christ. Notice what he says in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, because we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Under sin. That's his contention. Now, he then goes on to describe in the full transcript what it looks like to be under sin. But what does under sin mean? It means to be under its power. It means to be under its dominion, its rule, and its sway. It means to be controlled by sin, that the power of sin would have that dominion and authority over us. So when Paul says we've already shown and charged that everyone is under sin... He's describing our natural condition since the fall of Adam, our first parent. Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. That's a rhetorical question. No one can say that because we can't clean ourselves from our sin because we're under its power, its rule and dominion and sway so that it leads us and all that we can do is sin. Galatians 3, verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Speaks of it like a, a prison, something that binds us and keeps us, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Everything, every one, is imprisoned under sin, helpless to do anything about that condition apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It reminds me of that great hymn, one of my favorites, and I'm sure yours as well, Charles Wesley, as he wrote in that one verse, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's a picture both of the bondage of sin being under it, its dominion and power and rule and sway, and how we are set free from it through the diffusing of Christ and his work for us. Well that's the first part of this executive summary this way in which Paul sort of summarizes the whole case against us. The second one is very like it in verse 19. Notice what Paul says. Now we know that whatever the law and really here he very broad the scriptures say it speaks to those who are under the law, who are under The law. Now, again, a very interesting phrase here. It's not the same word as under sin in the previous verse. A more literal translation in the Greek would literally be in the law. And so I think the translators are right to understand it the way they've translated, and that is to be under the law, meaning to be under the law as a rule to be kept as a standard to be met. It literally can mean within the jurisdiction of, or again, under is a fair translation. Now, under sin, we saw what that means. Under the law has a meaning that, again, it looks to a rule to be kept perfectly, a standard to be met. Where do we see this in other places in Paul's writing? In Galatians 4, we see it. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And we have two, the very same phrase here in Galatians 4. Verses 4 and 5, with reference to Jesus, of course, he was born with an obligation to keep the law, every jot and tittle of the law, everything perfectly. That's what it means when Paul says he was born of a woman and under the law with the expectation that he would keep every part of it perfectly. And because he did, he is able to set free those who were by nature under the law, who was impossible for them to keep it. There was no possible way. And so Jesus earns a righteousness through perfect law, obedience, law keeping, which is then imputed or given to the sinner by grace and through faith. That's really what Paul means there. But when he says it here, he's indicting every human being. He says, we are all under the law. The burden is for us to keep it perfectly, and we'll never be able to do it. Never. Not even begin to be able to do it. And so Paul is able to arrive at the same conclusion. Jews... And Gentiles, Jews, yes, had the law, Gentiles didn't, but they had the work of the law already upon their hearts, so they're under the law as well in Adam, and all of them, Jew and Gentile alike, are under the burden of keeping the law, and they will never be able to do it, and so they deserve only God's judgment. It is a horrific picture, but it is a true picture of who we really are. No matter The perspective that you take on these verses, whether you look at the full transcript or whether you look at the executive summary of what Paul says here, the verdict is the same as God speaks it in his divine oracles. The verdict is the same. Everyone's mouth is stopped. No further argument can be made. Everyone is accountable to God. In theological terms, this picture that Paul is speaking of in these verses that describe our guilt before God is often referred to as total depravity or total inability. The one is a reference more to our fallen nature being corrupted in all of its parts, nothing left untouched by sin, The other is a reference to what it means regarding our earning of a right standing before God in such a condition. We're unable to do so because we are burdened with sin. We're under sin. We're under the law. Here, Paul shows this clearly, and it's beyond any challenge. No one, he says, will be justified in his sight through the law because the law only brings a knowledge of sin. Remember Paul again in Galatians as he speaks about the purpose of the law. Remember what he says? He says it's like a a tutor, a house servant charged with helping to raise the children of the home who, who tutor and instruct and guide the young child to maturity, to adulthood. In the same way, the law is given like a tutor to point out sin and to point us ultimately and to drive us ultimately to Jesus Christ. It was never meant, though it was itself good, it was never meant to be the means by which men and women, fallen as we are, could achieve salvation. Never meant for that. It was always to drive us to Christ. Three things as we close, just thoughts as we end This passage, which again is God's verdict, his testimony, the jury has returned, God has delivered his verdict, and the verdict is not good for any of us. The first point is this, this really is man's true identity apart from Jesus Christ. And it confronts us at a time, I think, in which we're living where so much of what we see are people trying to discern and find their true identity. We see all of this nonsense, if you will, this, this insanity all around us as people search all sorts of ways to find out who they really are. And here the Bible's answer is very clear, but it's not what people want to hear It doesn't lead to happiness or to good feelings, but this is who our creator says we are. And when we hear things like this, we need to echo the words we studied last week, let God be true and every man a liar. It doesn't matter what men say about us or who we are. It doesn't matter what we say about ourselves as we desperately try to elevate our own self-esteem It doesn't matter. What we need to see is our true identity, and this is what Paul gives us here. I hope, like me, you can remember, if you're a Christian tonight, I hope you can remember the very first time you heard this verdict spoken over your life. It was startling to me being raised Roman Catholic in the faith, if you will, or a religion that read the Bible, etc. I never understood that this is who I really was, that this was me here. I, I didn't view myself this way. But I remember it was striking to hear through the preaching and teaching of God's word that this, in fact, was God's view of me. And because of it, I was in a very desperate situation. It was humbling. It was overwhelming. But it was not without purpose because God used it, of course, as he always does when he draws people to himself. He starts here so that we might see our need and find it only in Christ. Perhaps you've never heard this about yourself. Perhaps you're hearing it the first time tonight. Maybe you've been in church, and you said, boy, I never knew that. That clearly is what God thinks. Maybe you've thought of yourself by carving out a wonderful, nice picture of yourself, of someone who is doing just fine with God, getting along every day. But this really is how God sees you, and this really is how God sees me, apart from Jesus, this is the place we have to wrestle to be uncomfortable as it feels that way. This is the beginning, Paul says, of the gospel. You know in human courts, and you know this is true as I do, you may not like the verdict that you get. Sometimes if you're on trial, you find yourself in a situation or you other trials that you've known about, you you don't like the verdict. What can you do? You can appeal. You can appeal the verdict, right? Appeal to a higher court. You can offer better, greater arguments. You can even submit years after the fact. New evidence, DNA evidence, a very popular thing these days. New DNA evidence clears someone who spent 40 years in prison. You can do that in this court, a human court. There is no appeal to be made before the Lord. He is the judge, he is the jury, he is, if you will, the executioner in that he will carry out the judgment against all of those who rebel against him, all of those who refuse to acknowledge him as God. There's there's no way to appeal this verdict. The only thing we can do is to acknowledge it as truly what God says about us. The second thing I want to point out is... I do want you to note again, and I've noted this before, this really is Paul's methodology. This is the way Paul does evangelism, the way he witnesses to those to whom he speaks. We live in an age, and you know it as well as I do, of churches, large churches, who have said publicly they will never, ever talk about sin because people have heard enough of that. That's not Paul's methodology, Paul's methodology is to do what he does here, is to uh, take away any propensity that a person has to trust in themselves and to show them that no matter how deep you look within yourself, all you will see is an ever-increasing depravity and inability. There can be, Paul says, no good news unless there is first the bad news of our depravity. And so let me encourage you as you witness to family and friends that you not just keep it on this level of of being good or being kind. None of us want to do that. But to help people see and understand that by nature we are a people in desperate need because our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can possibly know them? The Lord does. And his indictment, his verdict is in and it's clear And we can then, as we understand it, hear the good news. And that leads me to the final point. I know uh, that this is all uh, rather depressing as you think about what God says about us. But how important it is for us to understand, for us to hear it for the first time, to remember this is that from which God has rescued me. You know, Paul doesn't stop here. There are... 16 chapters in Romans. He's going to spend the whole of the next few chapters talking about the, the joy and the hope that we have in Christ. This is why he's not ashamed of the gospel. Notice just the next verses. But now, he says, but now, into this verdict, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Not obedience to the law. But apart from that, there is a righteousness of God that has been manifested and shown, and that righteousness is found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. So I don't leave you in despair tonight, certainly not. I want you to point you to the hope that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to a righteousness he born under the law who wins for us, so that we might have it by grace and through faith. And then when we do, when we receive that, as I did at the age of 19, and I trust many of you did, at some point in your life, as you receive that gift, as you understand what God has done for you, he changes your whole life. Inside out, he renews you. you have new life now. Out of that flows this desire, Romans 6, to offer everything that you are no longer as tools or instruments of unrighteousness, but as instruments of righteousness to his glory. That's why I chose the closing hymn we're going to sing. It speaks of that, uh, Lord, take me all that I am. Take me. I belong to you and use all that I am for your glory. That's the good news. But it has to start here. It has to start here. May God grant us grace to believe it. Let us pray. Father, it is with great joy because we have come to know the truth of the gospel. So many of us here tonight, but perhaps there may be one, maybe more, who has never heard the verdict so clearly expressed as we see it in these verses. Paul is not talking about everyone else and leaving us out of it. He's talking about every human being who has ever lived, save one, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so all of us fall under the condemnation. We're all under sin, its power, its sway, its rule. We're all under the law. We cannot obey it, and so we fail. And so our need is the need that Paul has set before us. And our hope is found only in Christ. Would you bless us and help us to to understand that, to believe it, to embrace it by faith, and to leave this place tonight knowing that we are changed because of your grace in our lives. And we pray this with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.